Welcome and thanks for listening. My name is Christian Buckley, and you're listening to the Collab Talk podcast. In this episode, I'm talking with Josh Simons, CEO of both Vamper as well as Jaxta, on what it takes to build a social network from the ground up. Let's get started. Welcome to another episode of the Collab Talk podcast, where we discuss the convergence of technology, business productivity, and collaboration culture. My guest today is Josh Simons, founder and CEO of Vamper, a collaboration and social networking platform for musicians, and the CEO as well, because he has a lot of free time, apparently, of Jaxta, which owns the world's largest official music credits database. Welcome, Josh. What an introduction. Thank you for having me. Well, yeah, because, well, so you must have three or four other hobbies that you pursue with all of the time that you have. Yeah, right. I wish. Um, regularly, especially at the moment and, and post-Jacks to um, acquiring my startup, Vampa, it's a uh, 14, 15 hour days, seven days a week. <laughs> yeah, that's what, that's what you, people don't understand that, the startup life. And it's yeah. uh, you've got to have a passion for it because it, otherwise it'll just burn you out and spit you out. But I mean, yeah, I was on the phone with someone from my management team at like one in the morning last night, and then I was on the phone with a board member at six this morning. That's, but you know, I'm not, that's, I'm not complaining. That's I've been yeah. used to working at that speed for quite a while now. Yep. Well, we're talking. I'm excited about this topic. So we're talking today about building a social network from the ground up. And we were talking, but before we started recording here, some of some of my background too. I just this just hits on a number of different areas. Like I, as I said, I, I wish that this platform that Vamper had been around when I was doing my my music journey back in the early nineties. So I, do I. I, I that's I, why yeah. I, that's why I built it. Yeah, <laughs> when I was when I was in a touring uh, an act, and we needed members and people to play with, and you know managers and what have you, and different functions in the music ecosystem in different countries around the world. There just wasn't anything like it. Like the closest thing was Craigslist. Yeah. And and Craigslist was so impractical for auditioning, you know, drummers or, or you know, any role, frankly, because you'd have to then set up a physical space. You were taking a bit of a, a punt on the, hopefully the person who turns up isn't a serial killer or a weirdo or, you know, just has the wrong taste in music, right? I mean, so much about, collaboration in music is based around tribes and people tend to sort of the conversation start is almost always oh you like that bizarre random album from 1984 as well and that doesn't make and so people start conversations around the things that they have in common which is unsurprising and kind of extends to other areas of our lives too so building a platform yeah around that i was just gonna say you know there's so many famous bands though that started exactly the way you described like um bands over in the uk like that they posted that they're looking for a singer or a guitarist through a melody maker magazine you know craigslist for us in the, the modern era but yeah they happen to be in the right yeah, they happen to be in the right place at the right time but my thesis was always what if algorithmically we can bring people who were probably better fitted together and cross borders and didn't require people to spend you know a lot of money going to live in the right cities and hang out at the right bars and know the right people there's a lot of serendipity that's involved in bands like the Beatles coming together or Genesis or Coldplay more recently, or U2 or 
Um, yes, they're all similar stories, but they were they were brought together by um, almost necessity, right? As a sort of mother of invention or whatever the expression is, um, because they they were like, I want to be in a band and I've got to work with whatever's around me. Those are the the good cases, and and, and they've obviously all had tremendous success, but. Again, the thesis was, well, I think maybe more people could find some success if they just had access to more people. Well, and that's also true just about music in general. I mean, this is a slightly different topic of like, like the uh, one thing that I love about the the development of the modern day you know, music consumption experience. And there's certainly there's downsides to that. Like, I get it. Like, I'm very much one of those people. Like, I find stuff on Spotify, things that I like. I go buy the things that I listen to day in and day out. I buy the physical items. I have, I have CD and vinyl collection extensive in the closets that are around me. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, I I know a lot of people that that they're just content with just streaming and never really purchasing. It is, it is true that we are in the minority, but we're a growing minority. And that's partly why we launched vinyl.com is that growing minority is, starting to be worth billions of dollars a year yeah. um, as people. I mean, it, I guess it's sort of, I going to say it's seasonal. It's not so much seasonal and just probably more macro economic waves that people go through trends of valuing ownership and collecting things. And right now we're at, you know, an exciting new yeah, rising wave in that respect. So people do value the, the tangibleness of art. Um, so, yeah. We're going to try and do some interesting things with that on vinyl.com. Well, this, yeah. So tell me about the, uh, you know, more about your background and about the launch of Vamper. I mean, what, what was the, the, the origin story that kind of brought it together? Sure. So I was in a band in Australia that did quite well in the early 2010s. And I say quite well, I mean, you know, we were very lucky that we, we broke on radio within six months of putting out our first single. We were doing, you know, festivals within six months after that, and we were playing in, you know, big tours a few months after that, and appearing on TV and all kinds of all the stuff that you dream of doing when you first start starting a band. Um, after we put our first album out, and it was a little bit of a journey from, you know, first EP and first few singles to the first album. The, generally, it, it did it did about what we expected it to do, and I had a little bit of money, and I thought, well let's give it a crack in a bigger market. I'm actually born in England. So I moved over to England and started work on a second album there. Um, the problem was I didn't know anyone. I didn't know who the radio pluggers were. I didn't know who the publishers were. I didn't have a management team over there that was local to London. Um, and I'd miss, and I'm not the first and I won't be the last person to do this, but I over probably shot my um my ability to just recreate what I what took quite a few years, you know, maybe four or five years in Australia to just somehow recreate that overnight in in uh, London. I overestimated my ability to do that. So um, that's when I sort of had the brain spark for an app like Vamp because I was like, it's not possible for me in my now mid-20s at that time um, to spend another five years in London building it up from scratch again. I mean, how much money do you need to have to break in each territory of the whole new team and um, I realized that the investment, not just in cash, but also in time was um, kind of clawing away at other opportunities and, and life more broadly. So I had this brain spark of, well, technology sort of made it very easy to record, very easy to release music, very easy to um, uh, 
you know, build a fan base through social media or what have you, but it wasn't doing a very good job in helping you connect professionally. And LinkedIn sucked for musicians. Yeah. Uh, LinkedIn's great for accountants and HR people, but it's horrible for, um, you know, a guitar tech or a, a, a top line lyricist or a public music public. I think a lot of the creatives in the for folks too that uh, you know in the social networking space, MySpace kind of served as that place. You had much more of it. It was crappy technology, but uh, it that it it largely served that process. A lot of bands for years still held on to their MySpace you know I'm, sites. I'm one of them. Yeah, yeah. I, I got discovered by our first lawyer on MySpace, and and he made key introductions to some of the people in the industry that helped us break so myspace was a part of my discovery story um and we held on to the then we went through all the different in fact i even consulted on the redesign of myspace when it was resold from news corp to whoever picked it up um but it was never to come back to its former glory but it really wasn't designed for um to be a networking platform for the music industry right it's just it, we almost like adopted it and kind of made it our home but um in our first pitch deck for Vampa, we sort of said filling the gap that MySpace left. Mm-hmm. Um, we later removed that because what we did, it grew in size and moved more away from just strictly networking and um, I suppose grew in, in ambition. But, um, uh, but yeah, MySpace was a really useful tool once upon a time in the earlier web. Yeah. Well, there are, I know that there are a lot of uh, platforms out there for just the publishing of, and that's a huge differentiator. Like, I, so for example, uh, I have my, I host my podcast on SoundCloud, which is a mm-hmm. nice publishing platform. There are a lot of musicians that go and post their music there and use it to syndicate across, uh, you know, um, iHeart and Spotify and Apple and kind of all of those different platforms. You can do it. And there's a lot of sites, Stitcher is another one. There's a, you, you can host on any one of those and distribute to the others and do that. Um, but again, that's just a publishing platform. And while there uh, you know, are well, a lot of musicians on there. Not to cut you off, but yeah. what we would call a distribution platform because publishing in music refers to something else altogether. You're right. You're right. Uh, you know, distribution platform. So another one that started up, and I don't know if you ever utilize Ning, N-I-N-G, Ning was one that started back in the early 2000s. They also went tried to build out for the, you know, for the musicians, and it just never. There were a lot of bands that would go and build their website through there, but it just it never took off. And the way again, it was a it was a distribution platform. It didn't it with with some cool little tools and widgets built in, but it still wasn't a social network it wasn't kind of combining all the various features i like it now now it's like build your own social network that's going to be tough to scale well they've had the same marketing i mean it's been i don't i don't know what they're doing i I remember uh when i had my startup again wow a long time ago back in that era (laughs) early early 2000s um that the uh, the the CEO of Ning came into a CEO group, uh, we call it CEO roundtable, um, bu- bunch of founders, and so she came in and joined our meetings for a for a couple months. But uh, I've not really kept up with what yeah. they've been doing. So you you got involved in Startup Land straight after the dot com, just before it. it right. A, okay. It was That's a it. great time to try and raise rounds too. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. Uh, yeah. Well, we've been through, we've been through something similar lately. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting too. So I, I'm interested uh, about this too, that it's, it's, um, you know, so what are the specific, uh, services and tools that Vamper offers to help creatives kind of manage the business side of their work? Cause there's finding people, but you guys do, I mean, the, the site is really rich in capabilities, the marketing, the, the publishing side, kind of all of that. Yeah. Yeah, so we, we do distribution like you were talking about before. So you, through Vampa, you can distribute to any number of those channels that you listed. Um, we do publishing, which is more in the sort of service of placing our users' uh, songs in film, TV, video games, ads. Um, then there's the sort of uh, EdTech play, which is Vampa Academy, which we launched about a year ago. Um, so that's, you know, it was kind of a brand new, it was, it was really exciting actually for me to go through almost like a different tech vertical and understand LMS and um, all the things that we'd have to do to really provide a, a world-class service there. And, and just meeting all the people involved in online music education has been, it was baptism by fire, but really um, I think got a very quality product there. And there's Vampa Marketing, which helps people get their releases into um, sort of programmatic placements in places like Rolling Stone and Billboard. And so it, it is, um, we, we always sort of see the network itself, that being just Vampa as the solar system or the sun rather, sorry, at the center of a solar system and all of the services we offer are little planets. And, and so we like to think that if, if we, as long as we keep the activity um, healthy and buzzing inside of that uh, sun, that nuclear fusion reactor there in the center, that uh, people will take advantage of popping out to the other planets from time to time as they as they need. It's, it's, How much it's, do you yeah. do you provide like a like a customer success type function where you help like somebody comes in, they 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 put together the 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 players, they find people of similar styles and tastes and and, and interest in doing a project, create the creation process itself, and then kind of every step to help them grow. Is that is there? So you, you talked about having like an LMS, like a learning management system to kind of, and I automatically think of, well, that, that'll help me on my entire journey from beginning to end, depending on how yeah. much I want to do. That's right. Um, the truth is, um, Christian, every step or every, every service that we offer, every, we call them solutions, but every solution that we offer has its own lifespan and its own journey of success. Um, so you take music distribution you know, a success story might be you distribute a, a song through our platform and then after three to six to nine months, because every distributor pays on different intervals, but you'd start to see a bit of a, um, you know, exponential curve in your in your royalty earnings. That would be a success story for a distribution customer. Uh, on the publishing side, it would be a frequency of, of, sync, of successful syncs to film and TV, et cetera. And then on the education side, yeah, just getting through the course. I mean, um, there's a lot of people get started and a lot of people get halfway through, but not a lot of people get a hundred percent of the way through. Cause it's a lot of hours of content. Um, as far as more broadly, which I think you're asking about, like how do we measure the success of someone who's sort of come into our ecosystem? Yeah. So we've written quite a lot of algorithms, some successful, some less so, and almost always all being fine tuned um, to try and understand where a person's at, at their stage in a career. And so you can do that in a number of ways. You can do that by looking at fan data, uh, chart data. You can do that by um, if someone's made X number of connections in this month and this much activity, and then they drop off for a while and then they come back and they pick up, say, a distribution tool. 
uh, you can typically understand that they've probably been away recording or practicing in that time. And, and so there, there's certain patterns and trends that we've tried to identifying them as the hardest part, like from a technological standpoint, but then once you know what to look for, it's pretty easy to train a model to, to tell us, you know, who's, who's at which part of their career and what should we be um, sending them updates on, you know, because someone who's already used the app to build out a pretty thorough network and doesn't really need the networking tools so much um, might well benefit from understanding about music business and getting hit up about the courses. And so, yeah, we, there's, there's a long way to say, there's a lot of algorithms that are helping us do that. And we've written them all from the ground up. Well, you know, what's interesting about what, so just kind of adding it wasn't on my list of questions prepared. It just, just made me think that um, there's a lot of companies that are going in uh, and serving communities and are collecting data to be able to serve those communities yeah. are also creating kind of a secondary marketplace for like music industry people to come in that want to look at data around the types of artists and things like that. Is that also something that you guys provide services around? Um, it's something we've always talked about, but there's a, uh, there's a, there's a few ethical issues with that. Um, I sort of obviously running a social network, I'd take privacy, have to take privacy incredibly seriously. And the idea of selling user data um, is never really entertained seriously unless there's, uh, an anonymized yeah, way you, of, you uh, have uh, to anonymize it yeah 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 so of course i i'm from america so we, we yeah, don't yeah, care yeah, so yeah. much <laughs> yes we'll but um anonymize it yet we'll still email you <laughs> well so yeah exactly yeah so uh, look there's um there are other ways of doing it too that where you don't and like for example charts so if we created we haven't done this but we've talked about it for years and we've, we've made some progress on it but if we told artists they can opt into a charts program where we use certain signals and signifiers to identify very, very, very early stage talent, much before, much earlier than even the labels could, um, and would they want to opt into that? If, if the answer was yes, because they understand that by saying yes, they have a chance of getting in front of some of the biggest A&R people in the world, they would say yes to that. Um, and then how much could we charge for that product? I won't say now because we haven't announced it yet, but pretty pretty buddy high because um, at the end of the day, the, all the labels really, what they're competing on is who gets to an artist earliest or first because that's when the artist is the cheapest to acquire. Yeah. Yep. Um, and so, you know, we think that that data is probably quite valuable. Um, we did explore at one point sort of an anonymized API search function and Jaxta has some of that. Um, and, and we can get into that later, but um, yeah, for, for now with Vampa, we'll, we'll probably try and just keep things as uh, yeah above board as possible and, and open honest with the users. Generally when we do that, things work. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, so what were the biggest challenges as you were building out this social network, you know, specifically for creatives and, and, and artists? Um, the biggest challenge by far was because we're a geo, geo social network or, you know, so it, it, your location factors into the algorithm basically yeah. um, was we, and we knew this would be an issue. I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to know this, but getting the first 1000 users in every major city was going to be a real, real nightmare because of course, one person comes on, they see that no one's there in their local vicinity and the algorithm comes up with zero results. Uh-oh, what do we do? And the short answer is 
there is no fast way around that. You know, we were, we had interns and plus myself and my co-founder just hitting up um, people on Craigslist in different cities every single day. We had 50, we'd have to do 50 each in, in X number of cities. And we growth hacked our way to, you know, the first 10,000 users globally, really. Um, and that took a year and a half. It wasn't fun. Um, at most parts of that year and a half, we probably thought we were going to run out of money and close up. Mm-hmm. Um, thank God I met my wife that year and uh, bought my dog and I settled in Los Angeles and became a green card holder of America. And a lot of great things happened that year that probably... Yeah, looking back on it, I'm, I don't know if I would have stuck with it if those things hadn't had happened because they they were a good distraction from what was otherwise quite daunting and terrifying. Once we got past that 10,000 mark, things started to change. Um, I got better at marketing. Uh, I got better at learning how to buy strategic ad placements at an incredibly low costs to push user insoles. And because we had grown at grassroots and quite organically and one by one, like digitally knocking on people's doors, right? Mm-hmm. As we grew it that way, by the time we were at a stage where we were advertising to thousands of people a day, it made sense because when one of those came people came on, they wouldn't churn because they'd see that there are other people there. And so, you know, you, you can't cheat that. That's why everyone always goes, oh, aren't you worried Facebook will build something similar? Not really. It's not that we're, it's not that they can't or won't. It's more just, I know how long it takes to build these kinds of platforms, period. You know, it's, it, I mean, I, there's, it's a, it's an important question to understand, like, like how you went and you just kind of described it of how did you build out those initial 10,000? I was sharing about uh, how I did this nonprofit 20 plus years ago, uh, you know, and, and it took us two years to get to the 10,000 members, uh, yeah. registered members of that. And a lot of the stuff people say, what were you doing? This, a lot of it was pre really pre social networking, true social network, the way that we know it. we'd leverage the tools best we could, but they weren't widely adopted. I mean, I'm, I, I was part of the beta for LinkedIn. There was nobody on it yet. Um, you know, at, at the time. And so we were printing out flyers and going door to door to businesses yeah. in the evenings yeah. and weekends. We yeah. were, it was old school. It was like, I felt like it was a concert promoter, which is relevant well, we to this world. Yeah. You know, yeah. I used to do that. I used to design handbills for I, so my band. We were in uh, the Sacramento, California uh, area, and I, I was helping two different clubs promote their artists as well as doing that. I got gigs because I made cool looking flyers yeah. and helped with the promotion of those. And you know, but that's like the old we, school way of doing it. We printed out we printed out flyers with like Han Solo and DJ Khaled saying like another one. But then at the top, it would be like a physical, it was like a physical meme. So, you know, you see memes in your social feeds, but it's like a physical one. And then we'd have a black bar at the top and then in white writing, it would say, I'm looking for a bass player. Or I'm looking for a guitarist. And then we had little tear off things at the bottom of just the website address. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And we knew that that was working a little bit when somewhat we i think one of my marketing people was just googling the the name just doing social listening and we saw on tumblr i think it was someone had taken a picture of our ad and said this is awesome and and it had gone somewhat viral so a physical ad inspired by digital marketing goes viral by someone taking a picture of it and then uploading it on the internet 
Yeah. Um, I always say as a marketing guy, um, one of the things that I, that I <clears> say that like, look, there are, there are a number of things that you could do, especially, you know, people that are starting up, there's, there's things that you could do that are low to no cost that just take time and effort. It's like, look, you don't have followers. You don't have members. Like what else are you going to do? You need to go do that kind of or organic. No, no, one wants, no one wants to do that hard work though. That's, and I think that's what separates. Um, I've heard this term recently. I don't like it though, to be honest, but I've heard one entrepreneur. Um, and it's the, I think it's that group of people on Twitter who follow all of the um, eclectic founders out there and, and, and take all their life advice from them, but never really actually get off their ass and start a business. And by the way, I don't think there's the reason I don't like the word is I don't think everyone's meant to be a founder. I think only a very, very, very small number of people have constitutionally what it takes. Um, and I think it's a real risk to someone who's not got the right, yeah, const mental constitution. Um, cause it can, it can really destroy a person. Well, that's why uh, if you go and, uh, you know, as you have, as I have, I mean, I've raised rounds. I mean, I've pitched to dozens of VCs and, and had meetings, uh, meeting after I've had repeat meetings with some so frustrating with VCs that never wrote a check, but, but multiple three, four meetings with, oh, yeah. um, but I learned from all of that. And but they, they talked about how, you know, the, the single most important thing is that founders group. But if they just, they recognize you know, you aren't the right person. It's like, you're never going to get that. Yeah. Get those funds. Yeah. So yeah, there, there's, that's, that's why you do also have a lot of founders that recognize when they get their first big round that it's time for them to step back into the product or technical roles and bring in outside leadership that can actually move the company to the next space. Yeah. I always struggled with that. Cause I think there was a period where I thought that that's what the company needed, but it turns out I was probably just burnt out and just needed a break. Yeah. Um, and then I would have, I mean, obviously I'm still here and I'm still running the thing, but um, I sort of came to the conclusion that no, I'm, I actually am the right leader at the right time. Um, but I maybe need to change how I go about my working hours and work-life balance and things like that, which I'm sure, you know, you, you get it right for a few months and then you slip back into old patterns. And it's also right. depends on what sprints are going on. Like, if you're working on a big acquisition or a big new product feature, um, suddenly you you don't even really feel it. You just suddenly realize, oh shit, I've been working 15 hour days every day for the last month, and you, and, and then you have to tone it back again. And um, I just feel like it's a never ending rebalancing. You, you know, I think that one positive thing to it that it came out of COVID was that I think people understand and, and a lot of just uh, uh, really kind of you know hardcore. Uh, you know, uh, leaders, managers that were just relentless on, especially in the startup uh, uh, cultures that, that recognize that, hey, burnout is a real thing and we need to make sure that there is some balance. I'm, I'm still, I'm like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a 12 to 14 hour a day guy. I don't, I'm, I'm one of those weirdos that uh, doesn't need more than like five hours of sleep, you know, and uh, yeah. once in a while I'll catch up, but uh, but again, it takes a, a toll. The older that you yeah. get, you know, it, it, it does take a toll. And so yeah. you can, I'm fine with doing a three, four month of sprint the entire time when I know I have a planned break within that. Yeah. In fact, if you know, and this is another little hack, but when you know that you've got the break coming up, I find that you can actually sprint for longer and harder yeah. because yep. you're working towards something. Um, whereas if you're, yeah, if you don't, put in a, a holiday or a, you know, some treat to yourself and 
you can start to just aimlessly wander a little bit and that's dangerous. Well, you know, I always say this, that uh, people who've heard me uh, talk and I've said it on the show um, that uh, I just got back from, you know, three weeks of travel, four countries and then across the U S and it's amazing that your body knows when you've finished your last presentation at that last event, you still have, you're going home the next day, but your body just kind of shuts down. It knows like, Hey, the pressure's off. Yeah. Like you, yeah. you've done it. So it, it's good to, uh, you know, again, uh, have those plans so that, uh, so you can collapse at the wrong, right time. So, yeah, I took so, my first holiday in nine years, about a month or two ago. Um, it wasn't a big one. It was like three weeks, I think, um, two and a half or something. Anyway, um, I didn't realize how much I needed it until I was on it. Yeah. And I was, I was sitting at the beach with my Kindle reading one one day mid, midway through the break and I just fell asleep and I was like I don't think I've done that since I was 21 I'm mid-30s it's yeah, yeah. it's it's I'm an uneasy va- vacationer as well so yeah it takes me like a solid week and a half just to have feel like I have the permission to relax yep. and then just to, and then when you're settling into it it's like oh time to get to the airport we gotta go home yep yeah. <laughs> well, I'm interested because uh, uh, another problem is, and, and maybe you've experienced this, I'm sure you have at a couple different times in the growth of, of your companies, um, is, you know, what have you found to be most effective in maintaining user engagement and, and fostering that collaboration? I mean, there's only so many new features you could go and introduce. So it kind of goes back to, you know, why, why I brought up customer success. You know, what yeah. do you do to, to make sure and nurture um speak to the users literally uh, one of from our chief product officer down to product managers down to the, the development team themselves they all hold user interviews every single week um so we get a lot of qualitative data um you know quantitative data of course we can see behaviors like we'll do a, a tweak to the algorithm like the discovery algorithm the main one and if we screw it up which happens from time to time, right? We're any, we're humans, but when you screw it up, you would see a direct correlation to the drop in, in daily active users. Right. So um, the good news there is in those cases, we know exactly what to fix and we know what broke it. The scarier ones are when you see changes in user behavior and you go, we didn't, we didn't ship anything. What the hell is going on? Um, and that's where you got to talk to people. And that's where the qualitative data becomes more useful, but yeah, look, feature creep was something that, I think like every entrepreneur at one stage, probably about four or five years into it, I was probably quite guilty of every time, you know, we'd ship something rather than then coming back to it and going, okay, did it work? And then iterating and then shipping a new version, we'd just jump straight onto the next thing and go, well, we'll come back to that one after a few months. We'd never come back to it. So I'm, I was very guilty of, um, yeah, just introducing feature after feature. And, and then we had quite a competent, platform with lots of utility but no one knew where to find anything so we had to redesign the navigation system and bring in a home page and you know come up with this idea of solutions and 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 also that was probably when i first started giving myself permission to kill things so um uh, by the way to anyone listening i'm very much talking about technology features killing features yes features yes yes code um (laughs) And even then I don't quite kill it. I usually comment things out because I always like to think that something might be used in a rainy day. But um, so we got quite, um, yeah, I just, I guess, brave in that respect around probably midway through the pandemic, you know, 2021. Um, 
and we rebuilt the site and we did a small rebrand and I think now the app's probably hopefully easier than ever to navigate, but there are still features that are far more sticky than others. And I won't lie, you know, we lean into marketing those stickier features. And so you could make the case that we could be even braver and kill a lot more of the things that we offer, but, uh, and maybe we will, but we're not quite there at the moment. So do you see, uh, you know, the, where your customers were, where your, I know you call them customers or members, for, for um, members users yeah yeah so do, do have you seen an evolution in how they use the technology has that changed because you know I, i'm just assuming that they they come in they enter in one with one idea of what they need to do and how they use the the, the platform yeah. and that has to evolve and change and then that does that change that evolution drive your again you're talking with with clients how much does that drive your roadmap yeah frustratingly i don't know if it's a good or a bad thing i think it's probably a good thing i think it validates the core concept behind this idea of a geosocial network with swipe capabilities for musicians but that is by far the most popular feature in the app and that's the one feature that we've had from day one and we can make better suggestions and we and we do and when you know we're on algorithm version seven something who knows you know um whereby each version had hundreds of iterations but um that core feature is still the most popular thing that people come to to play around with and 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 use it to connect with other people um we've obviously found ways to monetize the user base uh, in other ways, so the, there's a Vampa Pro product, which is a you know a premium version that gives you more. Well, think of like LinkedIn InMail; it allows you to connect directly to people, um, send more connection requests, etc. Um, and that's taken up by about four percent of active users, which is really good. Like from a you know our, our sort of goal was three and a half percent, and it's sat at four percent for well over a year. Um, but then the other ninety six percent need to be monetize in other ways and ads isn't a very creative way of doing it. But so we, we do have um, native ads. So we, we, we built out our own ad platform and bring in advertisers on a one-by-one -one basis. So we're not connected in with like, you know, an ad mob or an ad sense or anything like that. Right. So that's one way of monetizing them, but then also like getting creative on some of the other things we do. So Vampa publishing is actually free. You don't need to be a Vampa pro user to have access to that program. Um, because if we land you a $50,000 sync, we're taking our 35%. It doesn't matter to us whether you're a free member or a paying member. Distribution for non-paying members, they can use, but we just take a higher royalty cut. You know, it's still very competitive. It's 80%. Um, we, we take 20%, sorry. So the artist retains 80% if they're going through the free program. And if they're a paying member, they keep 100% of royalties. So you can see how we sort of, we find ways to offer some of the solutions um that are premium but to our non-premium mm -hmm. and so that's um that's been quite effective it's been quite effective at retention and um and helping people sort of justify their renewal rates after 12 months and things like that um it definitely is responsible for bringing up the lifetime value of the customer well an another side of this is uh, I, I know that um you know, there's been a lot of, uh, there were, there's been lawsuits. There's been a lot of stuff in the news over the last couple of years around, uh, protection of intellectual property rights. So how, 
is Vamper ensuring the ethical standards and copyright, you know, respect within your network? So you can't upload songs directly to Vamper. Um, we insist that people link to their existing social networks. Um, so YouTube and SoundCloud and Instagram. Those platforms all have content ID type things which identify copyright infringements and make sure that even if there is an infringement, the correct license owner gets paid so it doesn't even matter. Um, we also think it's good by linking to larger and other social networks. Um, we're helping contribute to the artist play count on other platforms, which is actually artist friendly. Yeah. Um, and we reduce the headache of having to upload all your crap once again, which is arguably the biggest barrier to entry for a music platform. So that's how we handle intellectual property, you know, stuff on our platform. But, you know, if someone for some reason uploads an Adele song to their profile and is claiming to be an Adele and we know because we can usually work out, uh, actually, I won't get into the how we do that, but there's various ways to work out whether or not that's true or not. And they can still be reported on Vampa for yeah, copyright infringement, um, more broadly just in, impersonating or you know scamming, phishing, et cetera. Mm-hmm. There's a few different categories that you can report content from. And then we have a, a human team that reviews that. And um, typically speaking, we just ban those accounts. <laughs> Is there anything that you do to uh, like uh, transcribe and, and check like the copyright of lyrics versus music could be original music, but they just outright stole lyrics? Well, the collaborations that people make as a result of meeting on Vampa aren't necessarily then uploaded to Vampa. So like there's no area inside the app where they yeah, can that, yeah. put the lyrics there. So, I mean, you probably that's actually one area where we, we don't do a lot where we should, because we, we own, I wouldn't say probably better than any other company, any other startup in the world. We own the meeting stage of early stage musicians, but, and so you could call it stage one of the collaboration, which is actually just saying hello to someone and, and realizing you want to work together. Stage two is actually the collaboration itself. And I would suggest that there's a lot more that we could do in that respect. And we are probably better positioned than anyone else in the world because we are in stage one. Um, but we've never had a huge, like, and again, it's kind of, we talked about this earlier, but often musicians will meet and then go away and almost like hibernate while ideas and need to gestate. And they might be in a practice room or they're just noodling in a bedroom, but they don't, it doesn't really logically fit that just because I was able to meet, meet someone in seconds, that we're ready to put out music within seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, it does have to be room for the art to occur. So we, we've we never been able to work out how to, you know, right down to the science, like to the minute, how to bring them back in at that moment when they're ready to record and collaborate, which is why we've never really spent a lot of money building collaboration tools because there's a lot that exists out there already. Um, but one day we'll work that out. And when we do, we can catch up and talk about how that's going. <laughs> well, I know that, and, and just one last question for you. I, I do want to ask, uh, since we, we've not really talked about Jaxta, like, so w- w- how do the two kind of work together? What is Jaxta? And then how do the two companies kind of work together? Yeah, so both companies, funnily enough, in their early decks referred to themselves as LinkedIn for music. But we were taking the social network approach, whereas Jaxta took this sort of um imdb approach they should have positioned themselves at the time as imdb for music because that would have yeah. been accurate yeah um, but 
the reality is, is both companies exist to help creators connect with each other, make money, get credited for their work. Um, so we had actually quite a lot of um, synergies there. Uh, bringing the two together, which, you know, I think just to release a, a new Vampa release last week, actually, for the first time has Jack's credits inside of Vampa. Um, has been a real challenge, but a really fun challenge. Um, so Jackster acquired my company in June, and then I was appointed CEO a few weeks later, and we got to work very quickly on a vision to bring the two services together for the purpose of creators. We still keep Jackster as a standalone database mm-hmm. for businesses who want to use the API and um, access it that way. But we really, you know, for someone who's like a songwriter or a guitarist who's got a few releases on the internet, jackster.com isn't very sticky because you upload your profile picture, you put your website details in and then you churn because you don't need to update your metadata every day of the week. You only probably need to check it out once or twice a year max. Mm-hmm. So getting that functionality into Vampa and creating more, even more value for the Vampa user was, um, was the priority. Um, and Vampa Pro as a product was a dollar a month more or something like that. And it just made more sense to just put it all over there. And so we sort of, You'll see, well, we have a new website coming very soon, but we're going to sort of hopefully do a good job of funneling creators to Vampa and businesses to Jackster, and that's how we'll sort of segment the two. I have to ask, though, how how does uh, Jackster compare to all music? Because I always thought of allmusic.com as the IMDb for the music industry. Uh, we're, we're more complete, and we're the only official credits database in the world, which means every single... Um, piece of metadata that you see on the site is coming directly from a rights owner um, and from the source, directly from the source. No other music database in the world has that. Um, And all music and other sites like that do allow for crowdsourcing to a degree. So some people can go in with the permissions and edit the information. We can't edit our information. So if if we want to change in the database, and we see it's a universal artist. We can't just, go, even if we know for a matter of fact that this piece of metadata is wrong, we can't fix it. We have to go back to universal and say, hey, this is wrong. You should probably get it right on your end. So that's, that's interesting because that, that's actually been a complaint about like Wikipedia of that you know, people go in, embellish this wrong information, artist information, just things that get flat out wrong in, in, or, or incomplete. And, yeah. and you know, people in there messing with it. Um, but it, this is almost, I think of it more like, uh, you know, Entra ID or formerly known as Microsoft, you know, uh, Azure Active Directory, you know, yeah. profile, like it's, it's system of record, like anybody just can't get in there and mess with it. There's a process. That's correct. Yeah, that's right. And look, that might get more flexible in the next 12 months, whereas we're really exploring, you know, if people could add a tier of corrections above the official data can we give that a branded name? Can we sell that product? And maybe the API pricing on that product is a little bit different than the official product. And so there is still ways to get creative there that um, I'm sure the company has considered well before I came in. But um, now that I'm there, I'm thinking about, you know, ways to make it a little bit more user-friendly. That's probably, I think, one of my strengths. So yeah, we will see. Well, the more that you can tie that, you know, any data entry to the user side of that, it, you provide that to other musicians. I think something that is exciting about this this era, and I talked about, you know, in the late 90s doing a digital, so a band had broken up. I had a, a buddy that was two states away 
I, I actually flew, I was in California. He was in Utah. Um, he, he was working on his master's in music composition and ran the digital studios at his university. I got to fly out and go use all this professional equipment and record stuff. So we have an awesome album that came out of that. But again, it was all, you could do all of that now via the internet. Yeah. I could do it in front of the PC. It, so you can, you can do it from your phone in many cases. Right. And it's, <laughs> it, 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 so looking at what this does to the long tail of, of music um, we just need to have better ways of, uh, as a music consumer for the discovery of these artists, because yeah. that's still a problem. Like I I'm, I'm consumed Spotify all day or my vinyl and CD collection. Um, you know, I need to get more of that, those new artists into my systems. How do you get, how do you get those artists in front of me? I think AI will play a role in, um, changing how discovery works. Um, I mean, our basic algorithms were always involved in, you know, Spotify's playlists, not all of them, but most of them. Um, but AI will hopefully find different patterns in both the sonic recordings, um, also in the metadata and also in the knowledge base of who's, you know, sort of the graph of who's, who's worked with who and who's working with these new people. And so I think if you can use a, a big database like ours to train a model, um, the, the question is how do you consistently keep the model up to date? Um, th those are the challenges, right? And so we, we, we try and work them out, but yeah, we're looking into all of that. It's an interesting space. I think there's a lot of uh, potential growth to happen there. So I'm very, very excited to, now that I know what you guys do, I'll be definitely following along. So I still yeah. have it in the back of my mind. Well, I don't, I no longer have the guitars hanging on the wall behind me. Uh, you know, but it, I, yeah, they had to go somewhere. They had to go somewhere. Right. I just, uh, I, I still have in the back of my mind the desire to go and, uh, and create new music. And now yeah. I've got a new site where I can go and look around and maybe join a project. So that's great. But, well, cool. I, Josh, really appreciate your time. Uh, for folks that want to find out more, of course, I'll have the links to Vamper and Jaxta in the blog post uh, and out on the podcast. And I really appreciate your time. Likewise. Thanks, Christian. You've been listening to the Collab Talk podcast. New episodes are published weekly, and you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and most other podcast platforms. Thanks for listening. Thank you.